from the field that this ain't exactly real or it's real but it ain't exactly there from the war against disorder from the sirens night and day from the fires of the homeless from the ashes of the gay democracy is coming Good afternoon, and welcome to Voice of the People Radio Buy and for the 99% for May 15th, 2021. And you just heard Leonard Cohen's iconic democracy, which is a pretty good summary of what this show tries to prove and do. So, uh, you're it is KFGM 105.5 FM low power Missoula Community Radio streaming on 1055 kfgm eight letters in a row dot org and now on podcast on anchor dot fm forward slash vop hyphen montana or searchable on spotify and other podcast apps under voice of the people radio by and for the 99 percent 
So I am Jim, the sound in stable sound guy. And today I'm joined by Dodie Anderson and yet again, Mark Anderlich. And uh, for those who listened to the show last week, um, we didn't have to substitute Linda because she's in federal custody after mistakenly leaving a cold beer next to a hot mic. No such thing happened. Linda had better things to do today. <laughs> she is well and, and out of federal custody. <laughs> As are we for the time being. Yes. And so, so we broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. And we are all recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which also are located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. So, Dodie, before we go on, do you want to say a few words about uh, yourself? Okay. And I'm here in Missoula also. And I've been in Missoula for like 11 years now. We, uh, my husband and I retired here. I was a teacher. He was an engineer. And our daughter went to the university. So we came up to visit her and fell in love with Missoula. And we were in Southern California. So we've been here for quite a while. And feel like we're Missoulians, <laughs> for sure. All right. Welcome to the show and to Missoula. <laughs> um, well, and we hope you, our listeners, are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can and by wearing masks when you do go out into the public, despite our CDC, perhaps, <laughs> by frequent washing of your hands and by getting vaccinated. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoy learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And we want to give, as we do every week, a shout out to old Mick as he is at home. And we hope that friend of the show, Catherine Kanayahu, gets better soon, too. Now, get better, Mick. We miss you. So the and you, too, Catherine. <laughs> Didn't mean to take sides. That's uh, the word of the week is internationalism. And this sounds like it's a belief in the importance of nations working together for common goals, such as maybe uh, peace. <laughs> I know that sounds radical, but uh, you're quite, <laughs> quite right, Jim. <laughs> um, you know, the opposite of internationalism, if you want to think of it this way, is isolationism. And there was a large isolationist public during the 1930s, for instance, in the U.S. that did not want to engage in wars overseas or to counter the growing power of the fascists in Europe and Asia. And to confuse things even more, there is nationalism, which believes that my nation state is more important than any other. Yeah, that right again. Um, nationalism actually can be either isolationist or internationalist, uh, believe it or not. But in either case, nationalists believe that their own country demands need to be the final consideration of any activity with other nations. So it's not quite like solidarity, right? Mm. Um, and I know that's somewhat confusing. Yeah. So back to internationalism. Um, is there a further meaning, Mark? I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> um, this is what our collective wisdom at Wikipedia has to say. 
uh, quote, internationalism is a political principle that advocates greater political or economic cooperation among states and nations. Just like you said, Jim, it is associated with other political movements and ideologies, but can also reflect a doctrine, belief system, or movement in itself. Supporters of internationalism are known as internationalists. Wow, that's revelatory. And, gener <laughs> and generally believe that humans should unite across national, political, cultural, racial, or class boundaries to advance their common interests or that governments should cooperate because the mutual long-term interests are of greater importance than their short-term disputes. Internationalism has several interpretations and meanings, but is usually characterized by opposition to nationalism and isolationism. I think there's, I, I, I'm not sure about that nationalism part. <laughs> anyway, uh, support for international institutions such as the United Nations, and a cosmopolitan outlook that promotes and respects other cultures and customs. The term is similar to, but distinct from globalism and cosmopolitanism. Can't even say it. Yeah, those, uh, it's astounding how all these terms seem to jumble up together like, um, you know, blocks of ice <laughs> <laughs> fighting to go through a, co a, uh, a common drain and uh, their meanings are can be anything you want uh, yeah almost and you know in 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 the u.s it is uh because partly because we live isolated on a continent with only really two other countries <laughs> mm -hmm. um that uh that's we, canada and texas canada and texas you've got <laughs> it some people say california is a different country, okay but but um I'm, i'll buy texas yes um, i'll buy Sold. texas for for 600 <laughs> um but uh uh but you know we tend not to think about you know the rest of the world we're pretty kind of self-absorbed sometimes as a nation and um and what's been happening lately is uh, things happening around the world that we have we're very deep into on our behalf that maybe we don't understand so that's why internationalism is our word of the week mm -hmm. um, and so in again from wikipedia to further explore the meaning of this word um, in 19th century great britain there was a liberal internationalist strand of political thought epitomized by richard cobden and john bright Cobden and Bright were against the protectionist corn laws, and in a speech at the Covent Garden on September 28, 1843, Cobden outlined his utopian brand of internationalism. He said, free trade, what is it? Why, breaking down the barriers that separate nations, those barriers behind which nestle the feelings of pride, revenge, hatred, and jealousy, which every now and then burst their bounds and deluge whole countries with blood, that's a pretty colorful way of saying that. Um, oh, yeah. So he could Cobden, be at CPAC. <laughs> right. Oh, he, he couldn't hold a candle to them. Um, <laughs> so uh, Cobden believed that free trade would pacify the world by interdependence, an idea also expressed by Adam Smith in his The Wealth of Nations, and common to many liberals of the time. Now, again, I have to say, the, the meaning of the word liberal here is not how most of us right. use it. 
It means about people who don't want government involvement in the economy. That's, it's that sense, the older sense of liberal actually. Um, and, and so a belief in the idea of the moral law and inherent goodness in human nature also inspired their faith in internationalism. Yeah, that was, that was an astounding period. And I'm glad that you got into that, Mark, because that, <laughs> as, as England was exploring empire and democracy and trying to mix the two together, <laughs> just like oil and water, uh, these, these rationalizations went all kinds of strange places. It, not long after this period, the, um, you know, a, a closed economy or one or, or versus open economy became an issue in the UK because the burgeoning, you know, industrialization of the country, you know, beginning with, um, you know, you know, uh, textile mills. Mm-hmm. was creating a class of people that were unhappy with the way they were being treated. And um, the, the mill owners hit on a way of justifying their behavior by saying, okay, we're really on your side. We, we see there's a, lo- there's a war starting in the United States where we get all of our cotton and we are going to show sympathy with working people by not buying any more inexpensive cotton from the Confederate States and instead buying it from ourselves at a premium from India and Egypt. Mm. And, you know, it's the same kind of twisted tortured thinking that, <laughs> that, that the corn laws went through for many decades. Yeah. Well, and that, twi- as we'll explore in a little bit, that twisted kind of logic continues to this very day. Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, <clears throat> Uh, again, from Wikipedia, those liberal conceptions of internationalism were harshly, you know, advocating for free trade, for instance, mm-hmm. were harshly criticized by socialists and radicals at the time who pointed out the links between global economic competition and imperialism and would identify this competition as being a root cause of world conflict. One of the first international organizations, and that's a significant thing, uh, in the world was the International Working Men's Association, formed in London in 1864 during the, <laughs> during the time of the U.S. Civil War <laughs> by, by, by working class socialists and political activists, including Karl Marx. Referred to as the first international, the organization was dedicated to the advancement of working class political interests across national boundaries and was in direct ideological opposition to strains of liberal internationalism, which advocated free trade and capitalism as a means of achieving world peace and interdependence. Oh, this difference in understanding how to achieve world harmony continues to this day, does it not? It, it, it does. There are two, these are the two main camps of internationalism, right? It's the mm-hmm. liberal free trade, capitalist side and it's the socialists. Um, and so hence it's got a lot of political import. Um, and there are, there are uh, those in the U.S. State Department uh, in, internationalists who see themselves as internationalists as opposed to isolationists who see free trade, promotion of liberal democracy, and the use of U.S. culture and military to create a world order. 
Um, in fact, uh, this was something that the U.S. took on right after World War II. Right, we were the oh, only yeah. country, we were the only country still or large country economically still intact. You know, Europe was in ruins. Russia was in ruins. Uh, Japan was in ruins. Uh, China was not developed. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, the U.S. Uh, decided to uh, basically uh, practice uh, our own form of internationalism and <clears throat> use these tools. Uh, some of the handiwork uh, more recently includes the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, other so-called free trade agreements, such as the Central American Free Trade Agreement or CAFTA, and which all are which are bound together under the much reviled World Trade Organization. The, there are, these are neoliberal or capitalist internationalist achievements, sometimes at the expense of the well-being of people at home, such as happened with NAFTA. Yeah, and um, interestingly, you know, there was another country that was in the same position as the U.S. Uh, in this hemisphere, about the same latitude, but on the other side of the equator, Argentina, who had huge exports during the war and it was out of the conflict. And if you compare U.S. post-war political history and Argentina, it gets really interesting. Hmm, Lots wow. of lessons to be learned there. You should, so you should bring this, bring this to a future giants. show. Yeah. So go remedy, senor. And that giant sucking sound. Yeah, that's what, of jobs leaving the country. But that's not all. Yeah, and who said that? The giant sucking sound of jobs leaving the country. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's a great question. Okay, Dodi, um, you're on. For five hundred dollars, who said it? I don't think I know who it was. He ran for president and oh, actually. That, oh, is that our former president right now? Our most recent? No. Or no. Oh, he's the current president to some people. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, 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 he he was uh, he helped Bill Clinton What's win that? the presidency. Oh, um, Al Fromm. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, Bill Clinton win the presidency. Uh, he talked like this. <laughs> oh, you're killing me, Mark. Boy, I got really got you guys stumped, don't I? Yeah. Um, well, that's why you're the guy that writes the script. You got the well, answers, and we're just guessing. Yeah. Well, it's it, he. Um, he made his fortune with government contracts in computer. Uh, oh, not the guy from Texas with the big ears. That's it. it. Oh, okay. Oh. Once you say government contracts and computers, <laughs> there you oh, go. I, I got there. Okay, so, thank yeah. you, Mark. That was very instructive. And and he was exactly right, though. That NAFTA at that time, NAFTA was the big sucking sound that uh, sucked a lot of jobs out of the Midwest, right? Um, so, uh, when governments who believe in the second form of internationalism, which I mean, the socialist method, or which sees the 99% as the dispossessed, or at least claims to, um, are elected. When those kind of governments are elected to power, the U.S. State Department leads the way in undermining the power of that government. Any government that challenges the supremacy of neoliberalism is seen as a fundamental attack on the U.S.-constructed international order. 
So we see time and again, secret and open efforts to overthrow governments such as Cuba and Vietnam, and more recently in Venezuela and Bolivia. Many mm. of the wars this country has engaged in, but not all, have been justified on the basis of maintaining the liberal democratic world order with the U.S. being the top dog. Arf, arf. Yeah. That's too is a form of internationalism. Seven syllables. I think that's a that's the biggest word we've had yet, <laughs> yes. which is perhaps nationalism dressed up in imperial robes. Uh, lots of other countries resent this kind of American exceptionalism. Exactly. Who and, could imagine? And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that this form of internationalism is really kind of nationalism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because an international world order run by the U.S. is seen as internationalist, of course, by the U.S. government. But an international order run by China, for example, is seen as bad and, and, not, and not worth, the, mm -hmm. worth the candle. Other nations have various points of view on the same topic. So there really is no international agreement about that. And in the U.S., we are constantly told we must compete against China because they may replace the US as the world hegemon or the dominant country. This is the problem with the free trade capitalist idea of internationalism. It ends up being just a world dominant nationalism after all. And in my opinion, that US dominated world order increasingly relies on massive US military power to maintain itself to the detriment of all people, including Americans. That's an editorial add-on there. That is, that is a very succinct and concise description and not very many sentences, Mark. You, you, you get the cup. That was great. All right. So how has this other main interpretation of internationalism fared? Well, um, th that, and that is the socialist version of internationalism. According to Wikipedia, Socialist internationalism is anti-imperialist and therefore supports the liberation of peoples from all forms of colonialism and foreign domination and the right of nations to self-determination. Therefore, socialists have often aligned themselves politically with anti-colonial independence movements and actively oppose the exploitation of one country by another." End quote. This version has some success in the 1960s, especially as African and Asian nations especially gained independence from European colonial nations. However, the forms of one country dominating another country have changed from the days of British occupation and rule of India, for example. The penetration mm -hmm. of corporate controlled markets in nearly all parts of the world and in their governments is really the new form of imperialism. The socialist internationalism had predicted such a thing but has not really succeeded because it's not been powerful enough to counter much of it. Absolutely. Perhaps when the corporate neoliberal internationalism falls into enough disrepair, such as what happened during the pandemic, then the socialist internationalism might see more success. Perhaps Watch this space. <laughs> That's Maybe. a compelling thought. Yeah, it's uh, at least at the very least, people ought to look at it as an alternative way to go. I mean, th th there's more than one way to have international order. And uh, and so, you know, people should not despair if the U.S. is not the <laughs> the, the 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 world hegemon, right? The world dominant mm -hmm. country. 
Um, in fact, I, my personal opinion is I think this country would be way better off if we weren't. Um, mm -hmm. so, and that, yeah. And maybe and we aren't. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Dodie. And it also sees, seems to me that a lot of what was driving some of this international uh, corporate was the fossil industry. You know, when they're in places taking the fossil fuel and in, like in Myanmar right now, they have uh, uh, standard oil is in there and they're having all kinds of problems. And oh gee, there's things that are happening there mm -hmm. that are happening because there are the neoliberals thinking they can support one side or the other and it's not always good for the people. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's there, there's a higher priority than the well-being of the people wherever wherever they are. <laughs> yeah. Um so um you know and and actually Jim and you sort of hinted at this too that it, it, it is becoming clear that the U.S. domination of the world is declining. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You only need to look at the last few wars the U.S. has engaged in to defend its version of a world order, which has ended in failure. That's Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Even though we're still in Afghanistan, we're still in Iraq, by the way, mm -hmm. you know, much smaller, yeah. but um, those ended in failure. And over the last few years, massive citizen uprisings against corporate neoliberal order in dozens, dozens of nations threaten mm -hmm. governments who do not turn away from the demands of the U.S. order. So, for instance, we're going to cover Colombia later in the show as one of the most recent examples of this. Yeah, these these are these are difficult and um multifaceted questions i and i think dody hit it right there that um the international energy consortium or cartel uh has been driving foreign policy and picking its friends based on what their what their resource picture is mm -hmm. and and i think a lot u.s domination didn't begin with with such a surly and self-serving face I, you know if you ask george marshall what his goal was with the Marshall Plan, he'd probably say to get the world back on its feet and make it safe for democracy and an ennobled and empowered population and get far, far away from the dictatorial, you know, autocratic regimes that caused the war. But, yeah. but that certainly wasn't the case in Iraq or Afghanistan mm -hmm. or any of the place or Libya, any of the places that the U.S. has been messing with lately yeah so i i i suspect we may be seeing a lot more citizen uprisings against this order around the world as the pandemic subsides. i i completely agree and including here in the u.s right the the george floyd protest last summer in one way can be seen as a revolt against the imposition of this corporate order domestically um, violent oppression by the police in the U.S. or by Israeli soldiers in Palestine is becoming less and less effective in sustaining the corporate neoliberal order, in my opinion. The public is beginning to see through the American exceptionalism and the Israeli-Jewish exceptionalism, variation of that, as something that is more an excuse for brutality to keep people in line with the order than a preordained blessing from God. Indeed. What? Yeah, how say you, Dodie, on that? 
Yeah, and uh, I think a lot of it has to do with people trying to excuse they're just taking the resources of an area or being uh, the dominant uh, power source. Mm -hmm. And uh, in many ways, they have decided that they can just be bullies and uh, you know do things that are just unfair and wrong to people. And I think part of what's happened from what's the training from Israel that came over here to train some of our police forces right. has brought you know the same kind of thinking that we can bully and we can mistreat people because we have the right to, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it, the, the resource, the <laughs> oil issue, I mean, be more specific, is <laughs> really, um, uh, is really prominent in the Middle East. I, I, I can't think of any other sort of uh, reason that we're supporting an apartheid regime like Israel, a brutal theocracy in Saudi Arabia, uh, which gave rise to the 9-11 terrorists, by the way. Um, And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, having on the brink of war with a country like Iran, which is actually probably in some ways more civilized than the aforementioned countries, (laughs) um, despite their own repression, you know, No um, argument for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it's like I mean the only why why are we why are we sent so many soldiers to that area? Why have we sent so much money to that area? Why are we spending expending so much of whatever goodwill we have left in the world on that area? I mean the, the only thing you can come up with is is because of the Saudi oil. I mean that's mm-hmm. that's it. Um, I'm and not so- Saudi money from the oil because it it doesn't yeah. it doesn't fall very far from this from the royal family. So there's a there's a huge resource base there that only has to answer to a few people. Right, right. right. I, I'm and not Iraq, sure. Go ahead. And Iraq had to do with oil, also the fact yes. that well, you know, of course, Spain had gone into Kuwait, and then the all the oil wells that they destroyed there that. Mm-hmm. upset the the people uh, in charge which was like the bushes and so they had to go after yeah them. the texaco bushes how odd <laughs> yeah the bush cheney rumsfeld exactly musketeers mm-hmm. and, uh, uh those kinds of things all centered around oil yeah, yeah I mean, and no go ahead mark I was just going to say uh, Saddam Hussein was perfectly acceptable for decades to the yeah. the state department in the u.s until mm-hmm. he he was gonna like get out of his lane right a little bit and so mm-hmm. he had to be taught a lesson and that's that's the maintaining of the that internationalist order is is what, right. what that was about like yeah. he became our boy after uh, you know after the shah died and there was a new government in iran and the u.s who had been you know supporting iran without question all of a sudden loved the Iraqis and were and built up their military until it didn't that didn't work out and then we decided we didn't like the Iraqis and let's not forget Libya which has vast oil resources it's not aligned with US companies but they have a lot of oil and look at all the mischief that's been done there we you know we took out um you know Gaddafi and it and it's just been bedlam ever since 
Yeah. And Ellen Brown suggests, um, you know, Gaddafi's crime was not, you know, being a punk, but saying that he was going to create a pan-African developmental bank using, you know, Libyan oil revenues. And that struck people the wrong way. And, and, and right. And he would have, uh, yeah, that's a great point because it would have broken from this U S dominated world order, right? It was exactly like, in the world bank. You have to, you have to placate if you're going to, if they're going to take care of you. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And, and what better, I mean, he, I wouldn't underestimate the opposition to something like the green new deal Mm-hmm. Or any of the, the, the efforts to deal with uh, climate catastrophe has, uh, has an element of, of, of this international world order uh, oh, yeah. associated with it. So um, Make a great show topic. It would, it would <laughs> wouldn't it? So we a lot got of two, red meat there, we got, along we with got... the black gold. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, as usual, lots of news to cover from this week. Um, what's first in our current news, Mark? Well, dis- despite uh, almost five months now of vaccines against COVID-19 being available, the pandemic is still with us. And maybe despite <laughs> announcements on the White House lawn, um, the overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases is now slowly dropping to a rate of about 35,000 cases a day nationwide. Worldwide, most countries' rates of new cases are more or less steady after going up dramatically, led by the European Union, Brazil, and especially India, with the U.S. right in that mix. India's out-of-control rate has now peaked and is slowly dropping to uh, really uh, 10 times that of the U.S., 365,000 cases new day. That's a third of a million of COVID-19 a day. Many countries are restricting travel to India, including the U.S., in an effort to stop its global spread. The World Health Organization advised governments, who's that? Um, <laughs> advised governments that before reopening, rates of positivity and testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana, the past two weeks, has met the goal with a steady positivity rate of 4%. One of the highest positivity rates in the nation is in Idaho, which is rising this past week and rising to 18%. South Dakota is averaging about 5% positivity testing rate, and, and it's dropping likely because of their higher than average vaccination rate. Wyoming is steady at 6%. North Dakota, which had also earlier exceeded WHO standards, has now fallen below them with a steady positivity rate of 6%. Uh, Montana has reported 61 hospitalizations as of Friday, seven less than last week. Only now, according to the WHO, which we can talk about since it's a new administration, can Montana begin to slowly reopen the economy? But things are way more open than that, aren't they? Yes. And well, and again, the CDC announcement this week is going to bust it wide open, I think, in many Mm. ways. Um, It may be tempting to think otherwise, but we are still a ways from beating COVID-19. And we'll get into why that is in a little bit. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, uh, President Biden, are you listening? The economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend in the economy. Let's not forget what's happening in India right now, which uh, we have covered in the past. And we reopened way too soon as we did. We still don't have enough money in working people's hands, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's ineffective action in the CARES Act has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy, control the COVID, but severely reduce people's income or leave the economy partially open or opening even mm-hmm. more to allow people more economic security but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. And this is the time in the show when Jim says, that's a Sophie's choice. No matter what you choose, it creates harm. Indeed. 
Um, these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet as it is still at large in the US and spreading. At over 585,000 deaths, <laughs> oh. you, and, and it's become so normalized that people aren't shocked by that number um, so much anymore. 585,000 deaths, the US is still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. As the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, life expectancy in the United States dropped one full year during the first half of 2020, according to a February 18th Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report, with even greater declines seen among Black and Hispanic people. And according to the latest figures of March 13th from the Lowy Institute, the U.S. was objectively rated 96th out of 102 countries, almost at the very bottom, in our public health response to the pandemic. The U.S. accounted for 17% of all the deaths in the world and for 20% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Um, and good old Lowry Institute, again, is showing us just how unexceptional we are. And in, in deference to them, I'll say it's a fair thing from fair dinkum in any way, mate. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. We That's what, that. oh, okay, yes. We speak real English. <laughs> fair fair dinkum, yes. I, uh, oh, there, there's a, got a friend here right. in Missoula who, who lived in Australia for a while. So um, okay. anyway, so I'll, I'll have to have her interpret. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's on Duolingo somewhere. <laughs> yes, I'll see to uh, Mark. And it, I, th I, th I think my, uh, 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 you know, my my Siri voice is Australian too. Um, <laughs> uh, we have been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten, which it is not. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks to distance themselves from others, to frequently wash their hands and to get the vaccine if we're going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination and fully reopening the economy. Speaking of vaccinations, uh, how are we doing, Mark? Well, overall, it's slow and slowing down, um, and uh, and I want to I want to reiterate that to achieve herd immunity through vaccination, seventy to eighty five percent of the population need to be vaccinated. So keep that in mind when I'm reading these figures out. Mm -hmm. um, Montana so has that's the minimum. <laughs> that's the minimum. Yes, a fully right. vaccinated. So Montana has only fully immunized 35% of our population, oh, half of what's required as of Thursday, an increase of four percentage points since last week, which that's good. Um, however, that is slightly below the average for the country, which is at about 36% fully vaccinated, according to data from the US, um, USA Facts website. The top fully vaccinated county in Montana is Missoula with over 52%. But hot on Missoula's heels 
is Silverbow and Deer Lodge counties, which mm-hmm. uh, account for Butte and Anaconda most generally. They're at 51%. Lake County, which is Polson and the Confederate Salish and Kootenai Nation, is at 49%. Lewis and Clark County, which has Helena, is at 48%. And Glacier County, the Blackfeet Nation, is at 47% fully immunized. Other counties include Ravalli County, which is Hamilton, uh, is at 41% fully immunized. Yellowstone County Billings is at 40%. Cascade County, which is Great Falls, is at 37%. And Flathead County, Kalispell, is at 31% fully immunized. Among the least immunized is Broadwater County, which is east of Helena and north of Bozeman, at 26% of its population fully immunized. In Montana, everyone can now make an appointment and should. Um, or if you're in, and maybe this is the case in other places, I think mm-hmm. in Kalispell, Flathead County, uh, you can just walk in. In Missoula, you could just mm. walk in. You don't need an appointment. Just walk in and get it. Uh, Missoula, that would be at Southgate Mall on some days. And I think it was at the fairgrounds in Kalispell on some days. Mm. Um, yeah. I think that Albertsons now too, I, all of those that have the pharmacies, a lot of them are allowing walk-ins or you can make appointments there. Good. And get it. Yep. So there's really no reason not to, right? Um, and unless you're nervous about the, the vaccine, right? I mean, and we can get to that in a little bit. Um, uh so if you haven't, you should uh, get vaccinated. And according to The Hill on April 16th, as I mentioned, uh, Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, told Business Insider in an interview that between 70% and 85% of the population needs to be vaccinated to reach mm-hmm. herd immunity. <clears throat> so we have not reached herd immunity through vaccination yet in Montana. And according to a Kaiser Health News report published in the Missoulian on May 12th, COVID-19 vaccination rates are falling nationwide as well as in Montana, with Flathead County dropping to less than 70 shots given a day. Um, That is alarming that we are not close to 70% vaccinated as a minimum to have herd immunity. um, I'm thinking Flathead County is aptly named. (laughs) what's their problem all that wonderful scenery and all those rich um uh you know coastal people moving in to work virtually and play cowboy and they still can't be any more illuminated than the way they're presently behaving well uh, well and i before we get too high on our horse um (laughs) i would say I mean, Missoula isn't there yet either, and um, we're we're barely past halfway mark. But um, you know, we'll see. Um, but they also have said that even though if you've had it, and some people think, well, I've had it, I'm immune, but that that immunity doesn't seem to last very long. So well, they really want to make sure those that have had COVID and survived get vaccinated also, so yeah. that they have stronger. Yeah, um, resistance to the right uh, COVID virus. Yeah, and 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 there's we'll get to this in a little second, but 
you know, honestly, the science still isn't in on these vaccinations mm -hmm. and on the COVID variants themselves. Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of shooting from the hip here. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and to maybe completely, I want to say this on air, FUBAR, for those of that's, you who know what that means. <laughs> yeah, another one of those darn government acronyms. That's right. It's, uh, and to maybe completely FUBAR the entire situation, in my opinion, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, issued on Thursday a release of people who are fully vaccinated from wearing a mask. This is the report from National Public Radio on May 13th. CDC director, Dr. And, and it's worth going through because I think um, mm -hmm. I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm just going to say this. I'm a big believer in science. I don't believe that the science is all in yet. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, uh, and so maintaining kind of the really simple, cautious things like wearing masks, mm -hmm. to me, is a much more sensible thing to do. But this is not what the CDC is doing. Um, so uh, CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky announced the new guideline Thursday. She said, you can do things you stop doing because of the pandemic, Walensky said. The new policy is based on recent real-world studies from Israel and the U.S. on people who've been vaccinated, she said. In response to a question, Walensky said the federal mask requirement on public transportation remains in force for everyone vaccinated or not, including on buses, trains, airplanes, and in mm -hmm. stations and airports. Um, I'm, I might add that she might be referring to, and i, I I don't know this for sure, but there were, there's been reports coming out is that there's been practically no infections of people outside uh, who are not wearing masks, right? So mm -hmm. unless you're in a large compact group, like a, you're at a sports stadium or something like, or a big demonstration, right? Um, yeah, but, but we need those big demonstrations. Right? That's right. Well, and I've been to a few of those lately too, but we all mm -hmm. wear, wear masks. Um, but being outside is not something. And, and really, as this whole debate that was going on between is it droplets that, that spread mm -hmm. the COVID or is it aerosols? And it clearly is aerosols, right? And so what that means is that these plastic masks are pretty useless. Um, mm. And it's the cloth mask over the mouth is way more effective. And you know what, the, the, a lot of Asian scientists have come to that conclusion themselves, even mm -hmm. like at the very beginning of the pandemic, right. um, because they, in fact, we covered a few weeks ago, how public health officials in Taiwan, they didn't handle the SARS virus very well. And they, they learned the lesson. They said, no, that, that, that the masks are the, are the, are the bomb. You know, <laughs> so, gotcha. um, so anyway, and now, I mean, they're keeping it on transportation, right? Okay. At least that. So Walensky said for travel, we are still asking people to continue wearing their masks. She said the policy continues to be under review. However, under the new guidance, fully vaccinated people can resume domestic travel without needing to get tested before or after, and they do not need to self quarantine. Okay. They also do not need to quarantine following a known exposure so long as they're asymptomatic, okay? 
the CDC says masks may still be required by state, local, tribal, or territorial laws, as well as businesses and workplaces. And so in Missoula, Missoula uh, County Public Health is saying, no, there's keeping with the mask mandate inside. Mm-hmm. Um, but some local jurisdictions swiftly announced, and this, this is the this, this was predictable, swiftly announced that they would be update their own regulations to conform with the CDC guidance and more are expected to follow, meaning they're getting rid of their mass mandates. The updated guidance for fully vaccinated people does not apply to healthcare settings, which have their own separate guidance. Unvaccinated people remain at risk of illness and death, Walensky said, and should remain masked and observe physical distancing. Now, I'm just going to say that I mean, we've been told that masks aren't so much to protect you from getting infected, it's that you don't infect other people, that it's basic solidarity to not spread it, which makes a lot of sense, right? And now she's inferring that unvaccinated people need to be masked to protect themselves. But I also think you know, uh, uh, I mean, and, and, and who's going to be doing this, right? I mean, <laughs> how do you know if someone's unvaccinated or vaccinated and they're not wearing a mask? You don't know mm-hmm. because we don't have vaccine passports, right? Um, it's this, this is FUBAR, I think. Um, <laughs> the speaking in the White House Rose Garden on Thursday afternoon, President Biden said today is a great day for America and our long battle with coronavirus. The president and Vice President Harris both smiled widely and did not wear masks. I think it's a great milestone, a great day, Biden said. It's been made possible by the extraordinary success we've had in vaccinating so many Americans so quickly, end quote. Mm. It's still not up to the minimum. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, He praised the American people for how much they had endured since the beginning of the pandemic, including lost jobs and missed life events, particularly the more than 580,000 lives lost to COVID-19. Biden emphasized that the new rules only apply to those who are fully vaccinated. People are considered fully vaccinated two weeks after receiving the second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines or two weeks after the single dose of the Johnson & Johnson shot. Those not fully vaccinated should still wear a mask, the CDC said. Quote, uh, Biden said, we've gotten this far. Please protect yourself until you get to the finish line. Again, it's about protecting yourself, not other people. Um, Mm. And we're going to get more into into, some of these uh, people getting infected when they are vaccinated. Um, So in an interview Thursday with NPR's All Things Considered, Walensky said the new mask guidance was possible due to the effectiveness of the coronavirus vaccines. The drop in U.S. cases and universal vaccine availability in the U.S. for people ages 12 and older, 12 and older, remember that, Walensky Mm -hmm. noted that the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are all 100% effective I'm always skeptical of 100% in science, 100% -hmm. effective in preventing hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19, even if they don't prevent 100% of the coronavirus infections. I mean, I'm also going to push back on that. It's like, um, so you could still, I mean, obviously you can still get COVID. No, nothing is 100%. 
-hmm. but um, the, uh, uh, you know, the science still isn't in, I mean, this is like, yeah, there's preliminary studies and they show and they're, and they show these things, but uh, it doesn't, you know, the, as we, as we said last, last year, remember Jim, we talked about it's, it, it isn't going to be till this summer Mm-hmm. That that's yeah. the normal routine that the uh, CDC and the Food and Drug Administration will take to find a vaccine safe and effective. Those results take time. We haven't even hit the summertime yet. That would have been the minimum amount of time that Agreed. they would have, would have done that. And so, um, so here we're jumping the gun again, maybe. Hopefully not. Maybe we'll luck out. Uh, I don't know. Um so uh, the CDC director said it would be safe for a fully vaccinated person to go into a grocery store, even if there were unvaccinated unmasked shoppers there. Walensky noted that the guidance will take some getting used to for many people. Quote, we have been doing this for 15 months at this point, and not everyone's going to want to shed their masks immediately, she said. It's going to take us a little bit of time to readjust. And... Why not take a little bit of time or a little bit more or maybe a lot of time to readjust? Caution is good anywhere. Yeah. You know, you always have a spare tire in your car, but how often do you have a flat? (laughs) Yes. And even if you're vaccinated, there is that small percentage that you Mm -hmm. could become infected and then you could be a spreader. Even if you you didn't get the symptoms that bad. And you didn't know if you're not wearing a mask. You could be a spreader, right? Yeah. Exactly, and and this this uh, honor system, right, is <laughs> is kind of laughable. I think a, a a significant number. I would be willing to bet a significant number of people who don't want to be vaxxed don't even believe that this is a serious thing, right? And so they're not going to be wearing masks. They're not going to get the vaccination. They're just going to. And so if they catch it, they're going to be spreaders. And, you know, and, you know, people that work in, you know, the United Food and Commercial Workers immediately issued a a protest basically to the administration saying, you know, you have people working in retail uh, and people and, and you're giving the okay for people to walk in without masks and in, in the, these frontline workers in retail uh, are again going to be subject to, uh, uh, you know, more people, mm-hmm. you know, infecting them. And again, the masks don't as much protect you from it is that it protects you from passing right. it to somebody else. This is just, you know, how, not, I, I, how un-American look out for the other guy first and you'll be okay. And I just wonder if part of why they're doing this is to try to get people motivated to go get the vaccine. Well, I I think I think that's it. And as a reward, you don't have to wear your mask. I I think that's insulting, actually. Um, Well, it certainly seems to be aimed at the lowest common denominator. (laughs) And I'm very concerned with covid more than other contagions is that this is one smart little bug. Yeah. It is adaptable. It is aggressive. It's its capacity to adapt to to you know mutate itself um, is uh, you know beyond anything I've ever experienced in my short life. <laughs> short. And, yeah. and so <laughs> be, so you know take every precaution because you never know what's going to come next. 
Right. And, and that's a nice segue into this next little bit that I'm going to read. Um, and this, you know, this uh, announcement is all on the heels of a disastrous premature reopening in India. Okay. Mm-hmm. We can't forget that. Reports of children becoming infected uh, without a vaccine ready for them. So under 12, there is no vaccine for children. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's, and there's, a, you know, reports of uh, maybe in, you know, again, there are reports, the, the science hasn't come in yet, okay, uh, to say one way or another, whether that's significant or not. And the fact that each and every vaccine now used in the U.S. is still approved only on an emergency basis. And that's mm-hmm. because they won't know fully until the summer at the earliest, maybe even into the fall. Normally, according to the CDC protocols, these vaccines would not be considered for widespread use until after being thoroughly tested for safety and effectiveness. And that means they could not say these vaccines are safe and effective until the summer at the earliest. Plus, there are now reports of coming in of so-called breakthrough cases where sizable numbers of fully immunized people are coming down with COVID, though at a reduced severity, generally, but also likely passing it on to others. Reports coming in from many places of these breakthrough cases, Mm -hmm. including the Seychelles, which we covered last week, to the New York Yankees baseball team. All of these things may be relatively harmless in the big picture, but scientists still do not know for sure. And according to a May 10th report in Naked Capitalism, the CDC had announced that they were not going to keep data on any breakthrough cases unless it resulted in hospitalization or death. That makes no sense if the science wants to learn from this. And then why lift the mask mandate? I'm still going to wear mine, even though I'm fully vaccinated. These actions by the CDC are not inspiring my trust in their judgment. Um, as the article in Naked Capitalism said, concluded, quote, these actions are fully part of the U.S. prioritizing profit over public health. The pretense of getting back to a semblance of normal and relaxing COVID precautions is more important than having a reality-based grip on health outcomes and what they imply. The refusal to stop transmission runs the risk of breeding something much more contagious and deadly. As Jim said, this is a highly, I mean, they always mutate, but this is pretty fast mutating uh, virus. And because it may, and this is back to the quote, and because it may well happen in stages, there is also the risk of it becoming gradually normalized, just as the current levels of death is. End quote. Yeah. Well, one thing we can say unequivocally is that the CDC is in better hands now than it was with the charlatans <laughs> that were in the prior administration. I, I don't. Faction's not there. I don't know about that, Jim. I because oh. because because this. You know them releasing people from math. I mean, this is where I would push back. I I, I think this is a really really stupid move, and mm-hmm. um, th- they may luck out. They may be think they may be betting. Okay, the the out the outcome of this 
may not be India. It's, it's not likely to be in India, right? However, that's, that's a guess and a by golly. That's not science, right? And, and I think that um, at least not any science that I've come across, uh, <laughs> that uh, it's still, there's, it, it, there's too much political and economic decision-making going on, which should be a scientific organization. That's, mm-hmm. that's my take on it. Yeah, I, um, well, Thomas Dolby said she blinded me with science, so I don't know if I can be (laughs) objected either. (laughs) It's always politics that gets involved in these scientific decisions. Oh, of course. You know, and then people's opinions and being swayed by this and that, but it really is, I think, better to be safe. Right. Right. And to uh, be cautious. Right. And, and the CDC is the Centers for Disease Prevention and Control. And if, if, if they're succumbing to politics, then what, what basis are we to believe anything? Right. I mean, they're supposed to be science based. They're supposed to be and they weren't above it when the Trump administration was there. There was a lot of pressure and some of them oh, succumbed yes. to it. Uh, <laughs> and and, you know, I'll say this, you know, Anthony Fauci himself, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, he, he told a white lie, as it were, which really backfired completely on the whole mask wearing. And, and I know people say, oh, no, that was the science of the time. That's that's bullcrap. I mean, uh, a lot of Asian scientists from their experience with SARS understood mm-hmm. that mask that simple cloth mask wearing was very, very effective. I mean, it wasn't hundred percent like nothing is, but um, it, it's a, it's a good way of keeping mass, uh, you know, pandemics at bay and, and, and Taiwan sh- sh- came through with flying colors, right? They, they mm-hmm. had maybe, you know, a couple of dozen deaths from COVID being right next to the source you know, China, and they had a lot more traffic coming from China than than United States ever did. Oh, certainly. And so, you know, right. the the our scientists, our public scientists have, you know, I I love science. I I believe in science, and they're undermining people's faith in science. And I, I yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not happy with that. I am really upset with that. Well, for those of you that are playing along at home, look at <laughs> look at the Kaiser Health newsletter for yesterday and see that all of the entries talking about um, new, uh, you, you know, new compromises and collusion in the former administration and um, disposition of um, COVID, you know, plans. So, um I, I want to think that the trend is in the right direction with the, with the current players, not perfect, but getting better. But I agree with you completely, Mark. There, there's some cavalier attitudes that look like um, a pep rally more than, you know, medical advice. Yeah. Opening, reopening the economy. That's what Biden was all talking about with right I his know. announcement i mean that's so it's the same it's the same old same old in some ways 
Well, yeah. everybody wants to reopen the economy. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> right. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's a given. I that's mean, a it's, given. Yes. And, you know, and if we weren't put in this place by the CARES Act, I mean, this, this is, the, I know, yeah. Yeah. The dilemma the CARES Act put us in. Um, we wouldn't even be talking about this, maybe. But so, so any good news on the economic front? Well, it's like always, it's mixed. Uh, Biden did lay out. His $2 trillion plan to rebuild the nation's infrastructure uh, in two plans, actually. Um, and they're being negotiated right now. Um, seemingly, who can say? I mean, at this point, it's reading tea leaves in, in mm. what, what is known as Congress. But um, and so, you know, we'll, once there's more information about it, we'll have more on future shows. Um, and as we've been saying, and I think it just bears repeating time and again, because we conveniently forget these things from week to week, um, as uh, uh, trackthecovery.org uh, has shown that employment rates have rebounded nearly pre-COVID-19 levels for high-wage workers, yet they remain significantly lower for low-wage workers. As of March 10th, the latest figures, those workers making over 60000 a year had an unemployment rate of just 1.7%. Those workers making less than $27,000 a year still had an unemployment rate of 28%. Still a wide gap in the bad economic effects, mainly on the working poor. The figures for last year in Montana show a very similar pattern, as noted by the Montana Department of Labor and Industry in their February 2021 newsletter. It said, while the pandemic changed many aspects of Montana's economy, the number of high-paid jobs in Montana continued to grow. Job losses in 2020 were concentrated in low-wage jobs that paid below $30,000 per year. The inconsistency of job growth between high and low-wage jobs su suggests the pandemic had disparate impacts on the state's workforce. While many Montanans still find themselves out of work, the growth of high pay bracket jobs is a bright spot for the state's recovery. And remarkably, astoundingly, um, our very own governor has thrown down the gauntlet to these lazy people on unemployment. Please wake me from this bad dream. Yeah. And that's mostly, again, it's low wage workers that are mostly on unemployment. Right. Um, so, uh, Montana Governor Greg Schoolyard Bully Gianforte <laughs> is pushing the unemployed kids down on the playground. The kids that have got the, they don't have the, the Air Jordan shoes or whatever mm -hmm. the, the latest $1,000 tennis shoes are. Um, and uh, uh, in the schoolyard bully is taking their money and telling them to get back to work because my pals need your labor to maintain their interests. Um, thanks to the additional unemployment payments of $300 a week, out-of-work Montana residents receiving assistance currently get between $351 and $810 weekly. Not a princely sum in any case. No. In enhanced unemployment benefits. Gianforte's new plan will cut out those additional payments starting June 27th and incentivize, quote, this is his quote, incentivize Montanans to re-enter the workforce, end quote with a single return to work bonus of $1,200 after one full month of work, which I'll bet oh. you, I'll bet you 1200 bucks. Not many people get to see that either. Right. <laughs> um, 
Gianforte will decline the federal money to pay for the enhanced unemployment benefits. Talk about kicking people when they are down. Yeah, and it's so funny. It's you'll get a bonus of twelve hundred dollars if you can find a job and stick with it for a month. Um, that's you know that's not a very you know, exciting carrot to be watching. No, it's it's pretty while it's you're sick. while you're pulling the economy's cart. Right. And it's insulting. The same thing as we were just talking about with the mask mandate, mm -hmm. you know, to try to incentivize people to get vaccinated, which is actually a good thing. But now they're acting like people aren't going back to work because they just like the it's such a, a thing that they've said for so long. You know, the poor are just want to suck us drive from all of the social services and oh. stuff, which is so far from the truth. Yeah, it's, so wrong. it's the it's reality turned completely on its head, isn't it? Um, yeah. And, uh, they, you haven't, know, but they haven't addressed the thing when it comes to child care, which right. is a big mm -hmm. issue for a lot of the working poor. Absolutely. And and low wages and, yeah. you know, and the fear, you know, a lot of retail and, and, and service industry jobs, restaurant jobs. Uh, and now without the mask mandate, people, do you think people are going to be motivated to go back to those jobs when then when people can walk in without their masks now? I, I, mm -hmm. I think that's going to make it worse. Um, it's just, yeah, that's a good point, Mark. It's really out of uh, touch. It's, it's like being a bank teller when everybody has a mask and a gun, <laughs> yeah. you know, in this case, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wonder if that'll happen. <laughs> yeah do you do you want to be a bank teller when everyone's walking around with you know i mean this could be montana right if if gianforte kind of reimposed the mass mandate and he basically open carry anywhere uh you know it's like i think bank bank tellers are going to be scarce supply um, <laughs> um or or uh, or 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 what convenience stores which uh, in, in, in my more cynical times, I would call stop and robs. <laughs> right. Um, Hey, cynicism's good. Uh, yeah. As a home here. <laughs> well, isn't that just an argument for having an electric car and plugging it at home? Cause then you won't need to have all those robbable gas stations. <laughs> See now yeah. there With you no go. Gas That's, great That's great thinking, Dodie. That's great thinking. Yeah. Yep. So then it's easy to forget that before COVID turned the tables, the, the, the tables didn't have very many legs to begin with. You know, this last, you know, the last so-called economic stimulus package was really a band-aid. So low wage workers are hurting even more. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yep. Passing a $15 an hour minimum wage bill would have directly helped millions of workers pull themselves out of poverty and underemployment, which doesn't get counted in unemployment figures, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. it, could have, it could have been a major structural change in the economic inequality within a bill that is just temporary and a Band-Aid, like you said, Jim. Um, so it could have been one part of getting our economy and our politics on a sounder footing. Other programs that can be added to this list include Medicare for All, 
student debt cancellation, which by the way, some, somebody had said that if you have student debt, that's means tested, right? Why would a rich person, if, if, if you've got the money to go to pay outrageous tuitions and go to mm -hmm. college, you're not going to be taking out a loan. And so every student loan is a means tested, right? <laughs> already means tested. I, I think. Or you're was, on a Coverdale plan. Yeah, it's, right. Uh, yeah, it's only people that um, are another rung or two down the ladder that even need that service. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's. Yep. And so, and, you know, on the list of other programs, the Green New Deal and a federal jobs guarantee, all of these things would, would make a much bigger difference in uh, low-wage workers' lives. Um, simply getting us through the pandemic just sets us up for a meltdown down the road, both politically and economically. What Congress should have done all along is what Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Seattle, proposed last year, Yay! <laughs> which should have been the model moving forward to this year. Jayapal proposed and what most industrialized countries in the world actually did was not to put people on unemployment, but to guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic, which would have eliminated the economic incentive to reopen the economy before we've beaten the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely true. You know, if <laughs> if the house isn't on fire, you're not going to leave when it's unhealthy. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> yeah. And um, and the student loan thing, I think, is pivotal. And the essential question to ask of whether or not a society is there to reward those that already have or if it is um, planning for a bigger pie and to make a more productive and inclusive and prosperous society in the future. Right. It's not that hard. Yes. You prepare people to be more valued contributors to society, not just as having better vocational skills, but being sentiment in a sentient souls that um, can understand the issues and can vote based on information and goals in, in, instead of nonsense. Can't right. think of a better word for it. Or, or, or instead it's really of, important. Pay, you know, paying, um, you know, whatever excess income they have from mm -hmm. work and, and paying it, you know, to pay off a student loan. It, it seems to me right. that, um, you know, we're, we're just as we're going to get into you know, Israel and Palestine here in a little bit, right. but it, appropriately enough, I mean, we should probably do some show about this um, and maybe have a word Absolutely. of the week, have a word of the week uh, uh, called Jubilee, right? Which, <laughs> which <laughs> you know, right. the, the, there are societies. And that's that, not Jubal early. That's right. That's southern right. gentleman, sword in hand. That's right. And bourbon and a glass of bourbon in the other. Um, it, uh, <laughs> yes, Linda. I just threw it. that in for Linda. I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm sure that'll make her laugh. But uh, the, um, uh, you know, the year of the Jubilee, which is something that like, relatively poor countries in the Middle East did on a regular basis. Every once in right, a right. person's lifetime, every 50 years yeah. or so. 
and, and this and their economies, you know, it re right. it realigned the con- the economies back to more equity, and um, right. and, and 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 it didn't create these huge uh, excesses of wealth or mm-hmm. des- desperate poverty uh, that we see here. And we should probably, I mean, that would be a good show. Um, there, there's a lot of good, uh, yeah. a lot of good uh, scholarship being done on, on, yes. on that. So, and, and let's easily, let's remember that in the U S in the 19th century, we had Jubilee years um, with, with, without that, without, without the biblical justification, there would be a rapid rise in the economy and then there would be a total collapse and it would fall back to zero. And they were called panics. They were called all kinds of things. Um, you have to read between the lines in the history book that you get when you're in, uh, you know, K through 12, see what was going on. But it's in but reality, I- that's the natural process. Give too much on one side of the equation. And before you know it, it's all gone. The but, house but, of cards collapses. But I, th- I think the panics really made poor people more desperate and didn't, of course. It, it didn't reallocate the, the wealth right. of the wealthy to, you know, those, the working poor, right. It didn't, yeah, that's a that, good didn't point. that didn't happen. So, right. But so you had, yeah, <laughs> but it did real actually um, as we've seen through this pandemic, the depression that was caused by the closure of the economy during the pandemic here and during other like the great depression or the great financial meltdown in 2009, who ends up increasing their wealth during these times? It's the wealthy. Yeah. And it's a government that didn't do its job. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, everybody knew who the malefactors were and nothing, I don't remember anything being done. There's there's the occasional person that gets caught like Bernie Madoff or Ken Lay, but they're outliers. Right. Yep. Well, the CARES, the CARES Act actually shoveled more money to wealthy corporations than it did to the American people. I know. Well, I'm not taking any <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not accepting anything that happened up until the you know, end of January this year as being part of reality, the real world. <laughs> that was just a bad dream. But I, I'm glad you brought the point up, the the parallel point that not only do you allow people to play a bigger role in society by for by not making them pay market price for their education, but the money that they do earn doesn't even go into the economy. So we're losing twice. Right. It's, it's a lose, it's a lose, lose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, every look, even, even bankers, well, bankers are restricted. They have to follow government rules, but you know, if you're a government and you loan out money to somebody and it's uncollectible, it's like, you're going to do much better by writing off uncollectible loans. And Mm -hmm. a a huge portion of student loans Mm -hmm. are uncollectible. And it's like, even on that right. level, right? It's like, you're going to, you, you know, um, you're going to, it's, it's not like that there's a pot of money there that, that is shrunk because you've loaned it out. Um, I mean, the federal government, you know, can create money, right, <laughs> un- right, unlike right. you and I. And so, mm-hmm. 
there's no shortage of right. money <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> so it's like, so right. it's, it's, it's just meanness, you know, it's just like, it, it, it indeed it is. It, and it, what was, what was George Floyd killed for? as supposedly counterfeit money trying to yeah, make his own money. Allegedly, right, right. <laughs> allegedly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so um, the, the next story is is about uh, the Middle East, right? And so um, about uh, um, uh, what's going on in, in Palestine and mm -hmm. Israel, which I think everybody has seen the pictures and, and, and the horrible uh, uh, violence uh, that's been going on against the Palestinians, um, yes. my dad. Um, and I, just as a side note, I was hoping to have uh, an old friend of mine who's an Israeli, um, who actually is exiled now in London because of his <laughs> support for uh, the Palestinian people. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a professor. He lost his tenure at a uh, Israeli university and, uh, and basically got death threats. Um, and he is now, um, and I was hoping to have him inter to interview him, you know, in this part. So, um, I'll just have to read from, uh, a, a, a much shortened, but a very long piece. And, um, that kind of really highlights some of the uh, interesting questions that this brings up that, that you're not, really hearing much discussion mm -hmm. on the mainstream media. So, and Mondo Weiss is a, a report, a kind of a journal. And on May 14th, this, this was one of their stories. Palestinians have for years said that they are living under an apartheid order. And apartheid, just, just stop right there, is an Afrikaner word meaning apart or, mm -hmm. or separate, right? It, and it's very similar. In fact, it's modeled after the Jim Crow laws of the United States, where, um, you know, in the South, especially where Blacks had, had to eat in separate places, had to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. in separate rooms. And, um, and so, uh, uh, you know, we've, were exceptional in setting bad examples uh, like that. Um, and so in Palestine, that uh, is, is an apartheid order. And why have, and this is the article continues, why have non-Palestinians been so reluctant to acknowledge this? On April 27th of this year, Human Rights Watch released the report called A Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. In over 200 pages of rigorous research, mm -hmm. the authors establish why, under the 1973 Convention Against Apartheid in 1998 Rome Statute, the race-based order through which Israel governs the Jewish and Palestinian population between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River amounts to the crimes of apartheid and persecution. The report follows an identical conclusion by the Israeli human rights group, Bet Salem, that Israel's regime of Jewish supremacy, otherwise known as Zionism, mm -hmm. <laughs> amounts to apartheid. That the findings of the report are meticulous in their analysis and overdue in their conclusion is an understatement. Because the report is unassailable on its merits, I won't dwell, and this is the author speaking, I won't mm -hmm. dwell on summarizing its points or repackaging its recommendations. 
Instead, I would point out that years before Human Rights Watch or Bet Salem offered their own conclusions, Palestinians have produced an extensive record through scholarship and legal analysis, as well as lived experience to inform the world that Israel has been and continues to commit apartheid against them. Reflecting this, my intent is for Human Rights Watch report to serve as a foundation for further discussion on an examination of the world's refusal to acknowledge the truth Palestinians have been telling for years and shedding light on the implications of the report for understanding contemporary Israeli society. The view that Israel is on the cusp of ending its racial system if only the right actors from within the system could take control is an illusion created by a reductionist lens. A simplistic perspective that attributes the source of all ills to a select cast of villains, while ignoring the entrenched power structures and motives, often cloaked yet intuitively discernible, that operate with far more effectiveness and intractability beneath the surface. One of the most common manifestations is the Bibi fallacy, the idea that if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu were removed from the scene, the system of race-based oppression he presides over would quickly disintegrate. Such thinking creates a tunnel vision where the singular fixation on certain figures and the attribution to them of all the increasingly apparent xenophobia and bigotry in segments of Jewish-Israeli society masks the true extent to which these attitudes and their outcomes are not recent additions, but foundational tenets. The events of April 22nd, when viewed in concert with the report, are enough to shatter this illusion conclusively. On that night, April 22nd, hundreds of far-right Jewish-Israelis rampaged across East Jerusalem, which is uh, uh, part of the Palestinian territory mandated by the United Nations. Mm -hmm. um, on that night, uh, these far-right Jewish-Israelis rampaged, terrorizing Palestinian families, attacking homes, and shouting death to Arabs. During the riot, a video interview with a woman wearing a Mayor Kahan was right sticker went viral. viral. The, and Meyer Kahan, if you remember, was uh, a Zionist who basically called for the extermination, in essence, of all the Palestinians, mm. all the Arabs in, the, uh, in, in Israel and in the occupied territories. Um, the interviewer asked, does the slogan, may your village burn death to Arabs, represent you? The woman replied, she prefers to speak of Palestinians in politer terms, saying, quote, you'll leave your village and we'll live in it, unquote. In the aftermath of the rampage, prominent Jewish figures were quick to distance themselves from the events, often by employing the tired platitude, this is not who we are, which is what we heard during the... You know, <laughs> I know. In, the in similarity the was stunt striking. Yeah, exactly. That's just what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, they claim the mob represented a small segment of Israeli society that is actively ostracized for its reprehensible, reprehensible views. But this claim does not stand up to scrutiny. The history of Israel's practice of dispossession, not eviction, it's dispossession. Mm -hmm. It's taking away people's uh, generational homes. I mean, how would you feel if millennial homes, millennial homes, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
ethnic cleansing and ethnic concentration laid so inescapably bare in the 200 page report make plain that the goal of the rioters is one shared with the Israeli state more broadly. It makes clear in exacting detail that the policy of Israel toward Palestinians in Israel proper, East Jerusalem and the West Bank has always been, you will leave your villages and Israelis will live in them. From the Negev to the Galilee, Israel has expropriated hundreds of thousands of dunams of land from Palestinian families to promote Jewish settlement. They continue to pursue, promote, and enact policies that contain Palestinians within densely populated underserved enclaves like, like Gaza, Indeed. which is really kind of an open-air prison. Yeah, it's uh, like the Warsaw Ghetto, only um, a lot sandier and more arid. Right. Um, every day in East Jerusalem and Hebron, Palestinian families live under the threat that settlers were storm into their homes and occupy them or arrive with court orders that justify their expulsion on the basis of forged documents. By May 6th, another six families from the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah will be forcibly expelled by the order of the Jerusalem District Court. No one expects they will be the last. The Israeli state continues to do everything the woman from Jerusalem riots hope for. Her stated ambition that, quote, you'll leave your village and we'll live in it, unquote, is not a dystopian vision that mustering of better angels can avert. The Judaization of the Galilee, Negev, Jerusalem, and Hebron is the living realization of that goal. Apartheid is the present and more damningly, the past. That's so scary. That's so <laughs> offensive. I follow these things closely. They, and I've had relatives that are directly involved. And I, the, <clears throat> the uh, thinking that allows people to be so myopic and self-serving um, almost seems parallel with the um, evangelicals in the United States. They have this... Uh, they have this dominionist vision. This is what God wants for us. The rest of you people that don't share our political beliefs are um, are sinners. <laughs> and, and, and you'll and, get what you deserve, right? Yeah. And, and so, you, you know, you are if if you don't adapt our mindset, um, then you are um, you are an apostate. You know, you haven't risen to a higher calling of uh, what it is to be a hominid. It, right. it, it's so scary, Mark. <laughs> and some of what they're using these days to justify what's going on in Israel and even to support what Trump yeah. did in Israel has to do with their view of the, it's the end times now. And so things, you know, must be set up so that there can be all the different things that are in the book of Revelation that tells <laughs> that you know, there's going to be stuff happening in Jerusalem, and that has to be the center of everything. So they right. have to tell the people that aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. Right? Uh, you, um, you remind me that on that one topic, the um, the the tribes of, south of the Ohio River aren't any different from the tribes in, you know, in Galilee, they, uh, you know, they are prepared, you know, they are anointing themselves and preparing themselves for 
uh, for the for the return for I, it, I'm, it's so you know I, I, you know I you know words escape me because the because these developments are almost too too bizarre to be captured in a language that was developed and promoted by by thoughtful people there isn't enough crazy in our language to, to define it you know um the so far the biden administration is 100 percent behind israel now there, yeah. there there may come some difference down the line maybe maybe there's something else but um my my israeli friend he was the reason he was exiled from his own country and the reason why his tenure was broken as a professor at the university was because he called for boycott sanctions and uh, dis, uh, divestment from Israel as the only way in order to change that situation there. And so that, you know, I'm going to say that there, there's still a chance for the Biden administration to do that. But so far, they have, they, uh, I mean, the United States, we, we fund billions and billions and billions of dollars to Israel. We threaten to withhold that unless they stop this. Um, otherwise, we're, we're complicit as a, as a nation. And it's so sad. I mean, what's going on there? The, the loss of lives, the loss of just infrastructure. I mean, right. bombings it, and wars, they're so useless in many ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's not forget the link of uh, the Israeli military with American arms production. Right. And, yeah. I, and, and I almost wonder how much of that stuff are they really paying for? And how much of it through a financial light, sleight of hand is a donation right. from, from, the, from the aerospace boys. Now, mm -hmm. I do know as a guy that grew up in, you know, in the same milieu as the Biden family, that uh, historically, uh, you know, Jewish Americans have been a much bigger percentage of the population, in, you know, in the mid-Atlantic states and the northeast and they have been politically active. They've been a huge part of the community and, and the backbone of the business community in a lot of ways. So, you know, Joe has, has been in an environment where these are the people who want to help you and want to be helped back in return. So a lot of what Joe says, I think, uh, you, you know, wouldn't fit if he was a, if he was a political leader anywhere else from the country i'm i'm just throwing that out there that, i have that, not seen that handled in the you know in yeah. the press either the crazy press to the right or the um whatever well, it is on the left well well you, i i think that could be a factor for sure um but i i think you, we have to go back to like fundamentals right so mm -hmm. the u.s policy the u.s policy of internationalism in the middle east oh okay okay is good idea is driving a lot of this right and mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of momentum i i do think that you know uh 
the, you know, the, the national security state, which includes the State Department, includes the Pentagon, includes right, the right, spy right. agencies. It's, there's a whole complex of, of groups that are there pretty much were there during Trump or there during Biden will be there for the next president mm-hmm. um, that they're uh, they see their mission as uh, you know, looking after the interests of, you know, the oil in the middle East. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and th- this is, you know um, this is so powerful. I mean, not only powerful f- for mm-hmm. standing up for the Palestinians, but powerful from getting off the oil addiction. Uh, right. That I, I, I can't, I can't over. It's hard to overestimate, you know, that influence and that mm-hmm. sort of mindset. Um, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I wonder that maybe a huge factor that's looming in the background, but it's hard to quantify, so it's easy to forget about is. Um, fossil energy and the oil reserves they have could become a stranded asset. Mm-hmm. You know, green technology is available. It's being produced. It's being utilized. You don't hear much about it in the United States, but from what from my exposure to other continents, other other countries, it's a thing and it's happening, and we're missing out. And um, look at all the invest, you know, the investments that are saying, you know, we will not invest in fossil energy any longer. And how and how stridently the U.S. government has been saying, you know, it's against the law to say that you're not going to invest in oil companies. (laughs) Right. It, it, It seems almost like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, it all, doesn't get reported widely, but that's what's been going on. Right. But the Biden administration is now suggesting that the subsidies that the fossil industry has been, you know, sucking out from us, uh, taxpayer subsidies will be ended. And so that'll be interesting to see if they could actually make that happen. Because no, I, thank you for bringing that up. I almost forgot. Uh, it gets... <laughs> Once again, it's one of those things we should all be aware of, but you have to look pretty hard to find it. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope that happens um, sooner that makes rather two than of us. later. Yeah. Three. Um, <laughs> Three. Yes. Okay, it's unanimous. <laughs> so. So yeah. Two things we can finish the show on. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the, the first time is good news, right? Can you can you stand hearing some good news? <laughs> Lay it on me, brother. <laughs> All right. It's uh, not the rapture, is it? it it's, I'm not ready it is, to go yeah. yet. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, uh, the, well, the, I'll, the, I'll the, open the sunroof on the car so the, <laughs> get pulled right up without buckling the sheet metal. Well, make sh- make sure you're you're uh, you've got a dead man's uh, you know <laughs> what do you call it <laughs> accelerator? No, it's oh okay, uh, I got you. You know, so it, it's like when oh you, I never drive the car that takes fossil energy. Oh, there you go. So you're just I'm sitting just, in it. Oh, that's yeah. Good. I just okay. use the bike rack to adjust my bike. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a pretty expensive bike rack. Um, <laughs> so, well, um, according to the May 5th edition of explorebigsky.com, this is a Montana story, 
After a months long process following years of internal negotiations between workers, directors, and management, the Big Sky Resort Professional Ski Patrol has voted to unionize. In a 69 to 21 vote tallied on April 29th, patrollers at Big Sky Resort chose to be represented by the United Professional Ski Patrols of America, a labor union organized under the Communication Workers of America in an effort to gain better working conditions along with more competitive wages and benefits, patrol representatives said. And this, this one's for you, Jeff Kempka. Um, <laughs> the vote has been a long time coming, according to a 15-year-old, uh, not a 15-year-old. That's 15, an underage worker. Man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, the, we don't want to say Big Sky has been employing child labor uh, illegally. Um, <laughs> according to 15-year patrol veteran Noah Ronzowski, but much is left to be determined. He said, I can't necessarily speak for everyone on the ski patrol, said Ronzowski, 39, who's been part of the group pushing for better conditions since 2014. But he said, I do feel like I understand what a lot of patrollers are saying and feel like I can speak fairly well on behalf of the majority of the 77% of people who voted yes to unionize the ski patrol. End quote. Big Skies Patrol joins Crested Butte, Steamboat, and Telluride in Colorado as well as Utah's Park City and Stevens Pass in Washington, all patrols represented by CWA. On May 3rd, Breckenridge ski patrollers in Colorado voted to unionize under CWA by a vote of 43 to 42. Boy, the skin of their teeth. That was close. <laughs> Last month, Keystone Patrol voted against organizing a union. While discussions have been underway since the 1980s, that's a long organizing arc. Mm -hmm. The most recent negotiations at Big Sky Resort began in 2014, when a group of nine ski patrollers began meeting unofficially outside of work to discuss the direction the ski patrol was headed, according to a BSSP organizing committee email obtained by EBS. Quote, it was unanimous that the working conditions, wages, and benefits were not sustainable to make this job a career, the email read. It was decided that unionization would be the last resort, end quote. Over the next six years, now, people who want to organize a union, listen to this. It takes time. Mm -hmm. That's right. uh, six years is a long time, but it's, uh, it can be shorter, but... It took them six years. The group sought to negotiate with resort directors and management without forming a union. And in 2019 proposed three requests to resort management, healthcare, paid time off and annual cost of living adjustments or COLA to keep wages consistent with the increasing cost of living and working in a resort town like Big Sky or Bozeman. Mm -hmm. In February, 2020, the patrol organized a focus group to streamline communication between patrollers and directors. And in April, 2020, a dozen patrollers had a Zoom call with CWA to get a better idea of what it would look like to unionize, the email read. We respect and appreciate the thoughtful discussion our ski patrol team has had while in the union organization process, said Troy Nedved, general manager for Big Sky Resort, in a statement to the EBS. Ultimately, we are on one team. This is Troy Nedved saying, mm -hmm. ultimately, we are one team who share a common passion for skiing in Big Sky. 
And we are committed to moving forward and working together to provide the best workplace possible, end quote. The summer and off-season hold negotiations for both sides, the patrollers and the resort, but no guarantees exist for unionizing at this point, according to Ronzowski. Quote, it doesn't guarantee anything at all, he said. The only thing it guarantees is a seat at the table, end quote. Oh, yeah, Mr. Nedved is all for one for all and all for one <laughs> when <laughs> when uh, when it's about the capacity of his workers to have a voice at the table. And um, Mr. Ronkowski says, well, we have a seat at the table. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, you know, I, I, I love this, uh, you know, politically correct, you know, togetherness speech that, uh, that the general manager is coming up with. We're all a team. And, We're and together. It, it's a shared experience. And, and an adventure might, for all of us yes. with our ski patrol associates. And and it's it's interesting to me, you know, having been a union organizer for a long time, um, that it's uh, that the workers really tried hard to do it without, you know, organizing to official union. And you right. know, obviously they came to a to a deadlock. And what it really means, actually, I think, in, in, in no uncertain terms, is that, number one, they're they're allied with other ski patrollers in Colorado, Washington and Utah, but also that um, that they'd be more able to have a strike if they need to, which there's no union. OK, uh, uh, really worth its salt unless there's an ability to withhold their labor, which is a strike. Right. So anyway, that was good news. That was real good news. Yeah. And let's not forget Columbia, the gem of the ocean. Yes. As reported in the May 6th edition of Resist. Now, how's, how's your Irish? Okay. <laughs> um, that's a very good question. I, I would say yeah, it's nice to know that Irish people are in Colombia. Well, and he's he's a reporter of Left Voice, right? And right. so, which was reprinted in Resist, uh, Gerard Olansing. Yeah, I, I'll go with Gerald Olansing. Okay. Okay. How about you? Uh, how about you, Doty? What's 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 your take? <laughs> yeah, Doty. What's your what's your Gerard Olansing? Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think we've got sort of consensus here. Um, probably, right. probably not even close to being right. But Giroid uh, of Left Voice reports from Bogota, Colombia. Uh, he says, he wrote actually, Colombia's national strike or paro or paro, which means stoppage as it's called locally, began on April 28th with enormous protests and on May 5th, enter its eight day. And I'll just mention, it's still going on to mm -hmm. this date on the 15th. Um, with another round of mass protests around the country, truck drivers and rural communities have joined in, paralyzing entire swaths of the country. What provoked these protests was yet another tax reform from the extreme right-wing government of Ivan Duque, <laughs> yes, Unfortunate just like name. El Duque. <laughs> Too I, close I was, for comfort. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking of something even more kind of childish. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, right-wing government of Ivan Duque, the third of his government, 
as the Colombian economist Libardo Sarmiento Anzola right, wrote in Le Monde Diplomatique. Wow. Uh, so there's like three languages in that. Yeah, sentence. you had to be trilingual on that one. Um, <laughs> the three tax reforms of the Duque administration from 2018 to 2022 have one common denominator, benefits for the large companies and a greater tax burden for 80% of the population, which is poor and vulnerable, through a mechanism that squeezes from both sides. On the one hand, higher taxes on their personal income. On the other hand, taxes on their consumption of basic food stuff, end quote. According to the same analysts, this represents a tax increase of between 300 and 500% on the middle class, guaranteeing its disappearance. The so-called reform aims to raise 31 trillion Colombian pesos, just over $8 billion US already, just under half that amount, uh, 3.6 US billion, has been designated for the purchase of new jet fighters. Boy, oh Columbia, boy. that's something Just Columbia really need. needs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Duque probably needs it to protect himself, right? Um, <laughs> it, forever- didn't, it didn't work for, um, for who, who, for, um, you know, Chile, where it was the jet fighters that bombed the presidential palace. Yeah, well, that was, yeah, uh, Allende. Um, Thank you. But, if, um, yeah. So, um, moreover, Duque's previous tax reform, which reduced taxes paid by multinationals, has already cost the Treasury around $1 billion U.S. dollars in its first two years and is projected to cost more than a billion in 2022. Duque's government was spared the last time around due, the vast, due to the vacillation of the trade union bureaucracy and the outbreak of COVID-19 pandemic, which saw public gatherings curtailed. Initially, which uh, I might say, o- almost every country in Latin America and, and elsewhere around the world before COVID was, in, uh, was up in, uh, not in arms, but in protest against their governments. Um, it, it was astonishing before COVID. And I think that's going to be coming. It's already starting to come back um, because nothing has changed, really. It's only gotten worse. Um, initially, a great deal of fear. This is back to the article. Initially, a great deal of fear about the nature of the virus led to people staying indoors, but not anymore. Almost a third of the increased tax take will come from a value added tax on basic items alone. Duque proposed taxes on everything from water to funeral services, oranges, and other fruits, but not on Coca-Cola or Pepsi products. Thank God. Um, Understandably, this angered uh, many. Duque, who is not known for his intelligence (laughs) and is widely... Yeah, and is widely considered to be just a dumb stooge for former President Alvaro Uribe, which I've heard before, Mm -hmm. too, went um, uh, Duque went on national television in an interview claimed he didn't understand why a VAT value added tax of 19 percent would be levied on funeral services. (laughs) The protests on April 28th were massive. In Bogota, they were peaceful at first, so much so that I left the main square to go home and upload photos. This is our Irish reporter speaking. But later, Colombia's specialized riot squad, 
no doubt funded and trained by the United States, uh, attacked the demonstration as it did in other parts of the country. The anger of the population was so great though that people did not bow down and rioting broke out practically everywhere. The police attacked the demonstrators with the usual weapons, tear gas, stun grenades, and batons. They also entered poor neighborhoods, firing not only their personal sidearms, which most police carry on them at all times, but also specially issued assault rifles. Is, is this sounding familiar, like in somewhere in Palestine and Israel? Yeah. Um, the results have not been surprising and echo previous stoppages. Figures on police violence are rising daily, but as of May 4th, human rights groups have confirmed, confirmed 26 murders by the police, 761 arbitrary arrests, and nine victims of sexual violence committed by the police. The Public Defender's Office, which was slow to react, eventually acknowledged 50 disappeared people, although human rights groups believe the, fi the figure to be much higher. Some of these people may be released, others may be charged, and yet others will be killed and disappear or have their bodies dumped, as occurred in Chile during the mm -hmm. Allende regime. Yeah. And, uh, uh, in and, the current and recently. And you recently know, in the current having, regime. Yeah, on the, the, the combined uh, strike between farm workers and miners, something that we covered about five months ago. That's right. Exactly. Uh, Colombia's police have borrowed another Chilean tactic, firing at the eyes of demonstrators. They have injured at least 17 people in this manner. The levels of violence are such that even a United Nations delegate complained of being attacked, while most European embassies, including the Irish one, have <laughs> either remained silent or issued mealy-mouth appeals for restraint and de-escalation. The police violence has done little to stem the outrage and determination of the population. The marches on May 5th were also massive in character. In Bogota, there were 35 separate marches throughout the city, with one major march in the city center and the rest in poor neighborhoods. Cali has seen the largest demonstrations in its history and, and, and actually has been the center of this current stoppage. And towns that have traditionally held May Day marches did so this year, despite the trade union bureaucracy pulling out. Even without them, the demonstrations were huge, and the decision of the bureaucrats left them exposed and further eroded what little authority they have. It is clear that the trade union bureaucracy and the congressional left parties want to make a deal and position themselves for next year's presidential and congressional elections. However, the protests have led to the withdrawal of the tax reform bill and the resignation of Alberto Carasquilla, the Minister yeah, got of it, Finance. Thank you. Nailed it. <laughs> um, there is a danger, however, that the bill will be repackaged and presented again, along with other pending reforms, such as the health bill, which I've heard is actually worse than these tax bills. The people, the people smell blood and are not keen on taking any pr prisoners. Calls have been made for the withdrawal of all the bills and the resignation of Duque and his government. Meanwhile, the governing party, the Democratic Center of Colombia, the CDC, huh, has, called for the right. <laughs> has called for the declaration of a state of internal unrest, which, though civilian in nature, would give sweeping powers to the government and the military and would effectively be a form of martial law. 
Oh. A statement by dissidents from the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, that they would impose an armed strike in rural areas may just give them the excuse they need. The following days will be crucial. And I haven't heard any follow-up to this either. So what happens next depends on how much Duque seeds. Does he throw a bone to the reformists left to call off the demonstrations or does he dig in and provoke even greater resistance from the population? As of yet though, there is no national leadership of the movement and there exists the danger that it may run off steam or be demobilized by left senators and uh, non-governmental organizations that have been open about their desire for dialogue. As I finish this article, I can hear explosions from police stun grenades in the nearby main square. There's a battle going on outside my apartment building and the tear gas is reaching up to the seventh floor. Once again, I left a peaceful demonstration that no doubt was later attacked by the police. And oh. quote. So, and as I said before, the protests around the country continue today, but yeah. maybe, not, maybe not at these levels. Yeah, that is very foreboding. And um, I vividly remember the decades long you know, conflict between FARC and, and the official government. And, and that was an astounding achievement when everybody put their guns down and made nice. Well, maybe the nice has worn off and the, yeah. the and it's starting to remind me of Cuba and how Batista was just ratcheting up the violence and intimidation of the population. And he just got to a titration point when he had killed too many leaders and the people stood up and, you know, Castro wanders in from the hills where he was safe and it's a done deal. And I wonder if something like that is imminent for um, Colombia. You know, we all hear about how terrible Venezuela is, its neighbor, and mm -hmm. how undemocratic and dictatorial it is. But I don't hear about violence like this in Venezuela, where the people are fundamentally fed up or taken to the streets. Right. Yep. Yeah, the, the, gover the government in Venezuela is probably way more popular than the one in Colombia. I know. <laughs> Who to thunk? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it, it's hard to say. And, you know, and I, I think there was a remark by this Irish author uh, that I, I, I think bears repeating that, um, you know, if the, if the FARC rearms and does this, I mean, mm -hmm. th that just goes nowhere either. Um, it yeah. just, it's just it's just an excuse for, you know, uh, it just gives an excuse for, uh, um, you know, the military to, to do repression or to have martial mm -hmm. law. Um, and, but massive protests are, uh, even if they're violent, even if people are being killed, um, as we've been seeing has a way, even in the United States has a way of moving popular opinion, even though now, I mean, it's like uh, popular opinion had really been strong with black lives matter. Very little, if anything has been done on the national level which means that, you know, we're going to be seeing cycles, maybe more cycles of this uh, to come. In the United States or in Colombia? In the United States, as well as yeah. Colombia, right? Well, um, what I've heard is that it was uh, BLM that uh, caused the June or the January 6th <laughs> incursion into the Capitol. You can 
you know, <laughs> right. Look it yeah. up on YouTube. It's a proven thing. It's B, a you proven know, George thing. Soros and BLM and Antifa were there. And the yeah. Patriots were trying to protect the Capitol from George, George was there. Huh? Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he was, was serving goulash. He was to, serving goulash with yeah with a thousand dollars with a thousand dollar bills under the plate, right? Right. Yeah. No, this is fascinating to me, and I, and it, you know, I've, you you know, the the resistance and uh, you know, democratization movement in Latin America is something that I've been exposed to for a long, long time in a lot of different ways, and um, Colombia concerns me. Yeah. This is, you know, this is, this sounds a lot like, um, you know, Batista pushing it to the edge and then just it, and it all blowing up. Well, w- one of the things about Colombia, which I think we've covered, it's probably one of our earliest shows. Mm-hmm. Col- Colombia is, remains to this day and has been for, for at least a decade, if not longer, the most dangerous place to be a union leader. Now, this guy was this oh, reporter. That's right. Thank this report. You. This reporter was a little, uh, you know, it was pretty harsh and and maybe deservedly so on on union leadership. But um, assassinations of union leaders uh, is uh, like status quo in in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And um, in, in in you know, if you've got someone courageous enough to, to stand up and say, I'm, you know, uh, and then they get shot down. I mean, it's, it's, right. uh, the, the United States, I mean, I remember under Obama, there was a request by unions in this country for Obama to intercede and basically say, stop funding Columbia. Well, he didn't do it right. He gave a lot of oh. lip service to it and the con- killings mm. continue. And um, and so, uh, you know, and of course, it continued under under uh, Trump as well. And and now continuing under Biden. And I haven't heard anything from Biden. Doesn't mean that he hasn't said something or isn't doing something about it. But um, it's been it's been this way for a long time. And um, and if people get sick enough of it, then they throw off their oppressors. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. History has taught us that over and over again. And, and thank you for bringing up that union organizers have been in the thick of this, which, which seems to be in contradiction to the re- reporters, uh, you know, talking about, you know, union bureaucrats, like they were, they were ensconced with, with the powers that be and, and weren't responsive to the people on the street. Yeah, it's is that what you got too? Well, yeah, I think yeah, I, and I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not sure how much this guy understands or not. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's a lot more complicated than how he's kind of portraying it. Um, to go, you yeah. know, it, it's like in in any strike, which this is, this is a works, this is yeah, a, a, okay. a general strike, is what this is. Uh, yeah, you're right. And it doesn't really call it that, but that's certainly what it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it, just, it, it all always yeah. leads to negotiations, right? I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it, but you go to negotiations with a very strong hand. That's what the, that, that's what it's about. Right. And in, in the right. end, even wars, right. Even like violent wars with guns and planes and bombs and the whole right. nine yards, unless you're going to obliterate your opponent it always ends up in some kind of agreement, you know, some yeah. sort of peace agreement. It, and one side may totally dominate and, and 
you know, and have the advantage over the other side. And so like the Treaty of Versailles, uh, which, you know, ended up just planting the seeds of fascism in Europe. Um, right, right. But it right. was negotiated from a place of absolute strength by the allies after right. World War One. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, we know that the, the dysfunction in Guatemala, Honduras, and uh, Nicar- and El Salvador, maybe Nicaragua, but I don't know, has led to an awful lot of people wanting to cross the Rio Grande. Yeah. Uh, um, Venezuelans, not so much. But I wonder, but at some point you wonder if Colombians don't say, time to put on a pair of comfortable shoes and walk a couple of thousand miles and look for some, yeah, look yeah, for greener yeah. pastures. And, might, may, uh, and what was not brought up here is, are there um, economic consequences to climate change? Because, you know, Colombia is essentially an agricultural exporter and that's, and you know, that's their lifeblood. I don't think that they're, you know, a, a uh, you know, mineral extraction or energy state. Do right. you know anything about that, Dodie? Since no, you were there in California and you're much more woke than we are. Yeah. No, I, I haven't really heard about like the fossil industry being active there as much. And right. some of that they has to do with, you know, and even Venezuela, when they were having the unrest, they have oil. Oh, yeah. Right, oh, yeah. right. And that has been an issue there since the beginning of time. Right. And yeah. it, so and that's but not uh, but not Colombia. That's a given. Nope. No. Yeah. And see, I think I think it's sometimes the shoe doesn't fit all the feet. Right. And but Mm -hmm. but what what does fit is that, um, you know, I mean, the the U.S. Look, it's whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, whether it's uh, uh, Biden, um, they all have bought in, you know, to the thing of, no, this is our hemisphere our yeah. internationalist order is going to be maintained. We don't want, you know, we don't, uh, a Bolsonaro, he's okay, right? He's a little excessive maybe, but, <laughs> um, but uh, in Brazil, but uh, having a Lula who's actually running again and is probably going to be reelected by the yes. way. Yes. Um, that causes a lot more heartache or an Abel Morales in Bolivia. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and the coup that happened there that not a single uh, mainstream media in the West called that a coup, not a single one of them in, in no. Bolivia. And, and, and of course, uh, the people forced to have another election. And of course, it was the, you know, the, the, the People's Party, the, the um, uh, what, what is it called mm-hmm. in, in English? It's like the, the path to socialism or something like that party mm-hmm. won overwhelmingly, you know, and kicked and basically the people kicked the coup plotters out. And so um, it's uh, and it's a more complicated story than that. But generally, right. generally speaking, um, it, 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 it's not comporting with the you know neoliberal view of internationalism that the u.s is, right. is our official policy is to maintain that so right we we have a recent example of how ludicrous it becomes remember um the former president having gaido stand up at the state of the union address and say we applaud you sir you are the hope of all americans for a bright new future 
in your country. And he, you know, and they tra- and they tried to bankroll a coup. They tried everything they could think of to manipulate a um, an insurrection, and it failed miserably. Yeah, I just laughed my head off at that one. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's a good example. Well, we are uh, <laughs> we oh. are out of time, and so it would. Dodie, we'll give you the last word. Do you have any any last parting yeah. thoughts? Ladies first at last words. Oh, this has been really interesting. And um, I thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this. And, well, great. Uh, great. Well, we'll, yeah, and we'll, great and we'll have you, you back too. Yeah. <laughs> we got, yeah. we got to, we got to keep grooming the, you know, triple A team. So that, <laughs> so they're ready to fill in. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you have been listening to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And you've been listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. And that is KFGM 105.5 Low Power FM, uh, Spawn of Pirate Radio. And, <laughs> and uh, or you are listening to it uh, streaming, live streaming on 1055kfgm.org, uh, live meaning uh, 12 approximately 12 o'clock mountain time to two approximately two o'clock mountain time um or you have been listening to it on podcast at your own convenience uh searchable on spotify or uh, other uh podcast apps under voice of the people radio by and for the 99 percent. we thank you for listening and stay tuned uh for the next show we hope to to have you listen in next week America first, the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change, and it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken, and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming.
Democracy is coming to the USA. 